Thank you for listening to Connection Church's podcast. This week, Brandon Williams begins a series entitled Lies of Religion. This was our first week in our brand new location in the Statesboro High School Auditorium. In this message, Brandon talks about the lie that numbers don't matter. Church is one of the only places that gets said. He explores Luke 15 and explains why numbers do matter and are important to Jesus. Well, good morning again. Y'all ready to get into the Word today? Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Hey guys, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be there today, this morning. We're going to jump over into Luke chapter 8, and then we'll wrap it up. Go eat some good food. Everybody ready for the food? Everybody excited? Woohoo! And this is really different. This is a lot different. I've been trying to visualize this all week, so I kind of wouldn't get up here and be like, you know, but it's still, it's always different. But glad to be here. I'm thankful for you being here. First of all, before we jump in, I just want to say one thing. I want to thank our staff who has busted their tails to get all this together this week for the last month and a half. And I want to thank all the connectors, all these people running around in blue shirts. Listen, guys, if you weren't being the hands and feet of Christ, this couldn't happen. And, and, and the people that are going to be reached because of, of, of this ministry could not happen if you weren't willing to be the hands and feet of Christ. So I want to thank you. Let's give him a hand. All right, Luke chapter 15, we're going to start a new series this morning called Lies of Religion. And and what we want to look at is just some of the things that maybe we've believed because people have told us to that that possibly aren't true. We want to open up the Word of God and see what it says about some certain things. Now, one thing I want to tell you about this message today is you've got to listen to the whole thing, okay? Like usually, a lot of times when I'll start out a message and I'll say something and then somebody checks out and I get an email the next week, okay? You've got to listen to the whole thing. So if you're going to go to sleep, just go ahead and put your fingers in your ears and go la, 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 and don't listen to the first part, right? Okay, but, but we're going to be Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at the lie today that numbers don't matter, that numbers don't matter. How many of y'all have heard that in church? Like numbers don't matter. Yeah, it, it's a pretty common thing that we hear all the time, right? Numbers don't matter. So we're going to look at that today and just see what God has to say about that. Let's read uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. God, thank you that you're here right now. Thank you for your faithfulness. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts through your word, that our, our, our hearts would be good seed to re, or good soil to receive the seed, God, of your word, and that it would produce just an incredible harvest in our life, God, for your kingdom. God, I pray for the one right now who uh, feels the farthest from you. That maybe the distractions of life have pulled them away or, or God, maybe uh, they've just never really known you. Father, I pray that you would speak to them, that they would feel the arms of a loving God, a loving Father, 
embrace them today. Take them by the hand and begin to lead them. Lord, speak to us, we pray, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have y'all ever thought about how much numbers actually matter? Right? Think about it. Everything in life, numbers matter, right? Think about it. when you go to a Georgia Southern game, how many Georgia Southern fans we got? Everybody, woohoo, yeah. Y'all better holler. We're in Statesboro, Georgia. But you go to a Georgia Southern football game, and let me ask you this do the numbers matter? Yeah, they matter. But why? Because we want Georgia Southern to win. So the numbers matter. Let me ask you about this guys who are getting older like me, you may be 35 or older. Let me ask you how about cholesterol? Yeah, that number matters, doesn't it? Most of you, you know you're going for your physical, so you just like fast for a week so you can go and not like, look, honey, my numbers are perfect. And then, you know, so you eat whatever you want to, right? I know that game. And, and so it, it, numbers matter. How about this? And, and this may speak to the ladies a little more. How about when you get on the scales? Oh, yeah. Numbers matter then, don't they? When we get on the scales, the numbers matter. How about when you get a speeding ticket? Numbers matter. Because you all know you do the same exact thing. What you do is you think, if I go 10 miles over the speed limit, I'll be okay. Right? We all do that, right? But 12, man, it's like that's, that's grounds for hell. Right? And so numbers matter. The only place I've ever seen that we would say that numbers don't matter is in the church. In the church. And we've been saying that for years. And I want to just address four or five things that I believe have caused us to buy into that lie to buy into this thought that numbers don't matter. The first one I want to tell you is this, that I believe sometimes we say numbers don't matter because we're trying to be politically correct. Trying to be politically correct. You ever notice how the church is the one place that we, we really try to be politically correct? It's the one place that it's not okay to be jacked up, right? It is. It's the one place that we, we can't go and be messed up. And it, we have to be, try to be politically correct. It is almost as if we feel ashamed to say we hope the church grows. Does anybody in here really believe that God does not want his church to grow? No, he wouldn't have sent his son, right? He wouldn't have said, he could have left us here in our misery and our despair. God desires that the church would grow. I heard the, the, the craziest complaint about our church I've ever heard this week. And I have heard some crazy ones. I heard a complaint about our church this week that the only problem with our church is that our band's too good. They said our band's too good. And, and the problem with that is it's just too, it's just too, it's, it's too professional. My first thought was, how dare us do something with excellence to exalt the Lord, right? Come on, my goodness. That's like saying the message made too much sense, which I've never had that complaint before. <laughs> but, but seriously, they're like, it, the band's too good. I heard somebody else say this um, a couple of weeks ago. They were like, well, you can fight us. You can fight. You can start a fight at Target parking lot and draw a crowd. I'm like, good, let's go down to Walmart. We'll get Joe and Don and get them in a fight, and then we'll preach Jesus to them once the crowd gathers. Does it really matter? Right? And so we're always looking for excuses to say, well, you know, we don't need to say that. And it's this idea that somehow we hide behind some type of false humility. And you know what's funny is that behind false humility is pride. And behind false humility is the exact disposition that you're trying to hide. So that most of the time when we hear people say it's not about the numbers, in the back of their mind it is about the numbers, but they know their motives are wrong, and so we don't want to say it's about the numbers, right? Yeah. And so we need to address that. We need to realize, listen, 
God wants his church to grow. And you know how it's going to grow? It's going to grow when you and I are so filled with the spirit of God that it overflows in our lives, into our workplace, into our homes, into our our recreation. Because good Lord, we love some little league. If we're going to give all that time to it, we might as well get somebody saved while we're there. Amen. Heck yeah. So wherever we are, that the spirit of God, the living water of God is flowing out of our lives into the lives of other people so that God's church can grow. That's what it's about. Another excuse is this. Listen, we're making excuses for why the church is ineffective. Ow. Right? We're making excuses for why the church is ineffective. And so the church isn't growing. We're not doing what we should be doing. We're not pressing into God. We're not growing deeper in God because you can't go deeper with God without going out for God because that's his whole purpose is to spread his glory throughout the world. And we can't go deeper with him without going out. And somehow we just make up an excuse for our lack of effectiveness and say, you know what? It's just not about the numbers. It's just not about the numbers. Another one's this, that we've overcorrected an error. We've overcorrected an error. Have you ever noticed that? When something's wrong, do we ever tend to go back to the middle? No. We always do what? We overcorrect. If, if, if we're on that end of the spectrum, we typically come almost all the way to the other end of the spectrum to correct something instead of coming back to the middle. And I believe that the problem with it is this, that we've seen so many people with bad intentions trying to grow big churches, trying to do things to glorify themselves, trying to build a monument to themselves rather than God, that we've just said, well, the numbers don't matter. The numbers don't matter. It's not about numbers. Listen to this one. I believe this. We really don't believe that God will still change people's lives. We believe that the Bible is a history book. We believe the Bible is a history book. Now, see, most of you in here, because I know a lot of you, I've gotten to know most of you guys in here, and I know that a lot of people would punch me in the nose for saying that. If I truly said, I said, the Bible's a history book, it's not living, it's not active, it does nothing for your life, there would be people in here who would rightfully want to fight me over that. So why do we live our lives like it is? Why do we live like it's a history book instead of the living word of God that still changes people's lives? Let me ask you this. How many of you have had your life changed by Jesus Christ? Amen. Amen. If it changed your life, it'll change somebody else's life. God loves them just as much as us. His word is just as powerful and effective for them as it is for us. And I want you to know that everybody that's got a butt in a seat in here today, God loves you. He cares for you. He sent his son to die for you. And on that cross, he took your sin. And all you have to do is by faith say, I want the righteousness of Christ because he was the only perfect human being that's ever lived. And when you say, I want that, that's what I want in my life. God gives you the righteousness of Jesus. Because he said, I want to trust in what he did. I can't do, do it on my own. I can't make it on my own. See, here's the problem, though, guys. So many times we've seen places where it was about numbers. It was, it was about just trying to grow a big church. And I want to tell you, so I want to clarify something. And when you bring guests, you can clarify this, too. What we're doing is not about the wood on this stage. It's not about the lights in the ceiling, although they are awesome. It's not about these comfy seats, which everybody got a seat today. Hey, Hallelujah. Nobody's watching it on television, although I did like to tell people that we're a multi-campus church with a, a video venue. 
even though it was just through some double doors. But it's not about that. It's about the people who are in the seats. It's, about the, it's not about how comfortable they are. That just makes y'all go to sleep easier. That makes my job harder. It's about the people who need to know Christ. And therefore, it is about the numbers. Listen, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus talks about a lost sheep. He talks about a lost coin. And then he talks about a lost son. Don't tell me that numbers don't matter. You know the number that matters to God? One. One. Jesus said it three times. He said it three times. That if I had all the rest and I lost one, I'd go after him. Isn't it pretty awesome to know you have a God that would leave 99 to find one? Isn't it pretty awesome to know you have a God that would give up the nine to go get the one and make sure he found it, that he would sweep the house clean? Isn't it awesome to know that even when you've been a stubborn, arrogant child of God and you've run away from God, that God still runs to embrace you? That's a good God. That's a God we can't fathom. And there are people in here today who, because of your earthly father, you can't fathom a father who would love you like that. And my prayer today is that the Holy Spirit would illuminate in your heart that perfect Father that loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine. What's funny to me is in Luke chapter 15, if you have a NIV, it says this. It says, it says now the tax collectors, and then it puts, and sinners. And if you got an NIV, it's in quotation marks, isn't it? Isn't it funny? How, how Luke wrote, and he put sinners in quotation. It reminds me of the church lady on Saturday Night Live, like sinners, you know, and, and he puts it in quotation mark as if it's almost setting it apart, as if it's saying, listen, this is, this is literally, they were sinners. And I think before we go any further, we probably ought to just, just clarify who sinners are, right? Because certainly if we've been to church all our lives and we, we, we look like we got it all together, that would not qualify us to be a sinner, would it? No, like you can look to your right and you can look to your left and you can look back and you can look forward. And guess what? You're surrounded by sinners. You are surrounded by people who as sin, the definition of sin literally means misses the mark. How many of you have, would say today you've missed the mark at some point in your life? And some of you like the target was that way and you went that way, right? And you missed the mark. We've all missed the mark. And that's the problem, guys. We serve a holy and perfect God, and, and the problem is we're not. We're not. We've all made mistakes. We've all messed up. There's nobody in this room today who is beyond a screw-up. We've all done it. And see, here's the problem in the church is we focus so much on the people on the inside who we deem to be saints that we've forgotten the people on the outside. We've worried so much about keeping what we have and not losing what we've already got that we've forgotten there are people who are literally dying and going to hell outside our doors. We'd rather make sure we keep what we have rather than going and getting what's lost. This is exactly what Jesus said the opposite of. Because we got to be about going and finding lost people. Listen, if it was important enough for Jesus to take an entire chapter of the Bible and talk about it, shouldn't it be important enough for us to live out? That's what God's called us to do. 
That's what God's called us to do. And for some of you, I believe you walked in here this morning so that you could hear that. That God desires you, the one. And even in this mass of people, you're going to see that God loves you. And that he desires a relationship with you. Let's flip over uh, to Luke chapter 8. You know what's funny to me? What's funny to me is anything that misses the mark is typically worthless, right? If something doesn't perform its purpose, then typically what do we do? We throw it away. Like I've never seen anybody jogging with an iPod that didn't work, right? I mean, or nobody, I've never walked in somebody's house and they were staring at a TV that wouldn't come on, right? I'm like, what are you doing watching TV? There's nothing, I know, I just pretend. We know, it's junk. We've got some chairs at our house around our dining room table. If you've ever been to our house, you know about our chairs. Because our chairs were bought as antiques, right? How many of you have ever bought an antique and what you really got was junk? The seats in our chairs, they will fall through with you if you're not careful. And so when you sit at our dining room table, you have to be like a statue and only move your arms because if you wiggle too much, you'll go right through. And we actually can strategically place them as to whether we like you or not. If we don't like you, we'll give you the chair that is most likely for you to fall through. So if you've ever been there and you fell through, that means we don't like you. No, I'm just kidding about that part. We don't do that. We actually try to make sure that we sit in the ones that are messed up the most because we don't want somebody to fall through, mostly because we're afraid they would sue us. But it's just, it's seriously one of those things, man, where, where it was bought um, for a purpose and it doesn't serve the purpose. So what is it? It's junk. It's junk. And seriously, when we can get some new dining room chairs, I'm going to burn those. I have made up my mind that I'm going to start a fire with those chairs. I'm going to hack them up, break them up, and burn them outside, and we're going to rejoice. Because those chairs have been a source of frustration and aggravation for us. And you know what's funny to me is that if we look at our lives, we've missed the mark. So many of us, every one of us, have have missed the purpose of our life at some point in time. So what does that say that we are? It would say we're junk, right? But here's the good news. Here's the good thought. The, The value of an object is not based on how the possession sees itself. It's based on how the possessor sees it. See, it's it's not based on how we view us. It's based on how God views us. And there's so many people who walk around and they look at themselves and and they see themselves and they go, I'm I'm useless, I'm worthless, I'm junk. And yet God says that you were valuable enough for him to send his son to die for. That's your value. That's your worth. It's not about who you're dating. It's not about your job. It's not about the car you drive. It's about God. And God said you were valuable enough that he would pay the ultimate price for you. Uh, How many of you like this show, Pawn Stars? Anybody? Pawn, P-A-W-N. Get your mind out of the gutter. Some of y'all said Pawn Stars. Y'all are like, woohoo, yeah. I know wonder they like this church. Pawn, P-A-W-N, right? It's about this, this pawn shop in Las Vegas. I was watching it one day, and, and this guy brings in an etching of, that Rembrandt had done. And, and, it was, and I'm, I'm, guys, I'm going to seem really shallow because I'm not a real art-type person. So if you are, you'll have to forgive me. It won't be the first time I've been accused of being shallow. So, um, but but he, they brought in this etching. 
And they brought it in, and the guy looks at it, and he's like, well, this could be worth a lot of money. And then he explained how they do an etching. Anybody know how they do an etching? Anybody? Let me see what I'm up against here. Because if I get this wrong, okay, there's one person that will know good. But the way I understand an etching is done is they take a piece of metal, usually something like copper. They put a waxy substance on it. The artist actually takes a, like a, uh, a, a pen with a real sharp point on it, and he begins to carve out of the waxy substance the image. And then they take that, that image... And, and they put it in some acid, and it eats away all the, the stuff, and somehow it leaves this indention in the metal. And then what they do is they take ink, and they put it all over the metal, and, and, and when they get the ink on the metal, they'll take it to a press, and the press takes it, presses it down on the paper, and it produces an image. And these people were losing their minds over this, this Rembrandt painting, Right? over this, this image that had been made. And see, we had a term for that when I was growing up. When you take ink and you put it on something and you press it on paper, that's a stamp. <laughs> right? That's a stamp. You know how much that stamp sold for? They said it in an art gallery because it was one of the later ones. It wasn't even the first one. It was like one, it was the hundreds of them were done. They said that thing would sell for like $3,000 at auction. For a stamp. There's no way I will go to Walmart and buy five of them for a dollar. And they were going to pay $3,000 for a stamp. But see, the value is in the eye of the possessor. It's in the eye of the buyer. And God sent his son because you are that valuable. He sees value in your life. He sees value in you. And even in a room full of people, God says, I'm coming after the one. I'm coming after the one. And what's so bad, and this is where we know that we missed it as a church. We missed it all. We, the church, the big church, Connection Church, every church that we missed it, is that for many people in this room today, when you hear that God is coming after you, Instead of going, woohoo, you go, oh, dang. Oh, dang. God's coming after me. And you got this picture of God with this long white beard and like a thunderbolt in his hand. And you're thinking, when he gets here, he's going to kill me. Don't you know that you've done enough in your life that he wanted, if he wanted to kill you, he's got grounds to do it? There's nobody in here that the holy God showed up and was like, you've been bad. You'd be like, no, I hadn't. He'd be like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> And, and the deal is, guys, God, if he wanted to kill, he'd have done it a long time ago. God's desire is not to kill you. It's to heal you. It's not to wound you. It's to make you whole. It's to bring forgiveness to your life, wholeness to your life. Excuse me, I lost my voice. Go eat. It's to bring wholeness to your life. Listen, it, he's not up there looking to slap you upside the back of your head like probably happened to you when you, you were about eight years old and you were in church and you were doing something you weren't supposed to and somebody bam. Pop you upside the head. That's not God. God loves you so much. He's so much value in so much value in you that He left heaven and came to earth so that you could be reconciled to Him. Luke chapter eight. We're going to read verses uh, forty through forty-eight. I want you to see an application of this in Jesus' life. This is one of the most awesome miracles that I believe happens in the Bible, and there's some awesome. Well, this is one of the one of my favorites. 
Verse 40 says, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, listen, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on the way, the crowds almost crushed him. Let's stop right there. Listen, this was like, Jesus was like a superstar right here. Jesus was like a superstar. If you want to get an understanding of what it was like, follow our our youth pastor, John Urban, through Statesboro. You'll understand because crowds, they just crush him, right? They just crush him because he's so good. They just crush around him. And you'll understand exactly what's going on in this scripture. I mean, listen, they were crowding him to the point the Bible says they were crushing and they were pressing up against him. They, they, were, they were coming all over him. It'd be like, man, listen, if, if, if Justin Bieber walked into a gym full of middle school girls doing a cheerleading camp, that's, that, that's about what this would be like. But they were all over him. At this point, man, he was, he was like the, 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 the budding superstar in that area, in that time. And so they're all like crowding around him. They're, they're all crushing up against him. And verse 43 says this. It says, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. No one could heal her. Listen, this woman, this woman had been bleeding for 12 years. Pretty much every scholar I've ever read believes that, that it was just uh, like a... Uh, um, a female problem, right? That that's what it's talking about. And, and that, 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 that she was dealing with this to the point where Mark, the Gospel of Mark actually says that she had spent all her money on doctors and she'd gotten worse. And the problem wasn't just her physical ailment. The problem was, according to Old Testament law, she was deemed as unclean. And when we talk about unclean and clean in, in today's you need to understand they're talking about purity. Basically, she was seen as unpure. If you were considered unpure by the Jews, then you were not able to be touched by anyone else or else you became unpure. Can you imagine how this woman lived her life? Isolated, separated, no touch from anybody for 12 years because they would become unclean. And this woman's dealing with this for 12 years. Years unclean. Can you imagine living your life like that? You couldn't have contact with anybody. You couldn't, you couldn't hold your, your children. You couldn't touch your husband. You couldn't do any of that. You were separated. You were an outcast. You were looked down upon. You were viewed as cursed. And this is this woman's predicament. For 12 years, she'd been separated from everybody. She got to a point where she couldn't heal herself. She got to a point where nobody else could heal her. And I believe today that there are people in here who you've reached a point where you, you realize, I can't heal myself. You've realized, I can't, I can't become whole on my own. And maybe there was a time in your life when you walked real close with God. Maybe there was a time when you were really tight with Jesus and somehow you drifted away. But today you've gotten to a point where you realize, you know what? I've allowed things to come into my life. I'm unpure not because of my blood issue. I'm unpure because I've walked away from Jesus. And there's some people in here who are unpure because, as we remember, we are sinners and we've never come to Christ in the first place to be forgiven of our sins. And we're like this lady who's been separated, isolated. And then it goes on, it says, she came up behind him, but came up behind Jesus. And she touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately the bleeding stopped. 
Listen, this lady was desperate. She was desperate, and she's to a point where she's like, i got to do something. The only hope I have is if I can get to Jesus. But remember, she's surrounded by all these people. He's surrounded by all these people. That means that every time she walks into that crowd, every person she touches becomes unclean. And every person that they touch then becomes unclean. But there's something on the inside of her that says, if I can just get to Jesus, if I can just get to him, he can make me whole. He can give me life that I haven't been able to find anywhere else. And so she begins to push her way through. Not only would she make all of those people unclean, but when she touched Jesus, he would be deemed unclean. And yet she keeps going and she's thinking, if I can touch the hem of his garment. And see, there's more to it than what we see when we read that. But the Jews, when... When they would, uh, their priests would wear these, these robes, and one of the things they would have on them were tassels that would hang down from their sleeves. And the tassels were there to remind them of the law and to remind them of those things. But one of the things that we, we need to see in here is the same word that's translated for robe. And in, in, in Malachi 4.2, listen, in Malachi 4.2, the Bible says that there is healings. There will be healing in the wings of the Messiah. It's a, it's a messianic prophecy. It says, one day the son of righteousness will arise and there'll be healing in his wings. And listen to this. The word that's translated for wings is the same word that's also translated for robe. When we read 1 Samuel 15, 27, a few weeks ago, one of the things it talked about was when Saul grabbed Samuel's robe, it tore. It's the same exact word. It means robe. So to a Jew, now listen, to a Jew, they understood that when the Messiah shows up, in his wings, in, in his garment, there will be healing. And in this woman's mind, what she's saying is, look, if I can get to touch the hem of his garment, then I can be made well. If I can just get to touch the hem of his robe, I can be made well. And so she risked everything to go in. She risked being ridiculed. It says that the leader of the synagogue was there. And she pushed on anyway, knowing if I can just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just touch his robe. And in the middle of all these people, listen to what happened. She touched him, the bleeding stopped. Jesus says, who touched me? Jesus asked, asked. when they all denied it, Peter said, master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling at his feet and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. How she had been instantly healed. You know, the funny thing about it is I don't believe Jesus ever asked a question because he doesn't know the answer. You know what I'm saying? I don't think Jesus ever asked a question because he's confused and doesn't know the answer. I believe Jesus said, who touched me? Not for his own sake, but for the woman's sake. Because he didn't want the woman to just walk back out in obscurity and still be looked down upon, still be isolated. He said, who touched me? And the woman had to come to him and publicly profess, it was me. And I believe Jesus did this for this one fact, so that she could be completely whole and completely restored. Because when Jesus comes into our life, his goal is not just to to heal us up a little bit. His goal is to make us whole again. All of our defects, all of the things that are jacked up, not to forgive us of our little sins, but to forgive us of the real big ones that we seem to have a hard time forgiving ourselves for. 
And there are many people in here today who are in, a, in bondage and in prison. Because all of your life you've been told this, that if I'm good enough, God will love me. And what we don't understand is we will never be good enough to come to Christ. When will we ever be good enough to come before a holy God? We won't. And so we come to Christ. He gives us his righteousness. And then the Bible says we can boldly come before the throne of God. That's for you and I. That's for you and I. See, this lady, she had to push past. She had to push past what everybody else would think. And, you know, we always like that message for teenagers, right? Don't give in to peer pressure. But you know what I find? As adults, we're just as bad. As adults, we are just as bad. But she pushed past the, 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 the crowd. She pushed past the, the, the synagogue ruler. She came up to Jesus, and knowing that if he finds out I touched him, the right thing to happen to me, according to the law, is that I would be reprimanded, that I would get in trouble. And why is that our view? Why is that our, our understanding? How messed up is that? That on one hand, we would say that God loves us. And on the other hand, we would say, I don't know, maybe he wants to kill me. I mean, wouldn't God be kind of conflicted? That you say, I want to send my son to save you, now I'm going to kill you? Sometimes it'd be easier, wouldn't it? Like when you raise your hand and say, I want to receive Christ, if it's and you just went to heaven. I mean, it'd be a lot easier. But that's not God's desire. His desire is to take you through a process where he begins to create you to be more like him so that his glory becomes known to other people. And you got to hear this, guys. I don't care where you've been, what you've done, what you've done it with. God's desire is that his glory would shine through your life. That is God's desire. And that is the truth for you today, that God desires to show his glory through you. One of the other things I love about this section is, you know, you can't go unnoticed by God. You can't go unnoticed. Even in this room right now, you, you know, God knows, the Bible says that God, God knows the number of hairs on your head. How'd you like to have that task? I don't want that. And yet God knows. You can't go unnoticed by God. God knows. He, listen, he knew you before the foundations of the earth were ever laid. He knew he was going to have to come and die for you long before you were ever, you know, a twinkle in your daddy's eye. He knew he was going to have to come and give his life for you. And he did. And he'd do it again. The question is, what are we going to, are we going to accept what God has done for us? Listen to this last verse. Verse 48. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He didn't say, daughter, your effort to get to me has healed you, did he? Your effort, it just because you pushed through the crowd, because you finally made it up to me, because of your boldness, your, your faith, it, you've been healed. No, he said, your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. And there's no way we could ever do enough to be recognized as perfect, as holy, as worthy of God on our own. It only comes through Jesus Christ. 
And even in our ailment, even in the place where we have been, been left ourselves as being unwhole, as we've left ourselves being unclean, as we've left ourselves being unpure, God comes and says, I want to make you whole. I want to make you clean. I want to clean you up. I want to make you pure. And I will touch your life if you will allow me. And it's up to us. It's our move, guys. God has already, he has trumped Satan. I mean, he kicked him square in the mouth. I mean, beat him to a pulp. See, Satan thought he was beating Jesus. He didn't realize that he was about to get his butt kicked once and for all. That's why Jesus said it's finished. When he said it's finished on the cross, he wasn't talking about his life. He was talking about Satan's rule and reign over us. And we need to understand that, 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 that we can go and in faith we can have the righteousness of Christ and the holiness of God can begin to work itself out of our lives. That's what God desires for us. That's what God wants for us. He says, go in peace. Jesus told us, he said, go in peace. Now, now, now you've been healed. You've been made whole. And what's awesome is that the word for, for healed, it's a word, word called sozo. And, and it actually is translated more in the Bible as saved than healed. 93 times in the New Testament, it's tra- translated saved. Saved. He said, go, you've been saved. You've been delivered. You've been healed. Now go in peace. Let me ask you this. Are, are, you, are you in peace today? Do you have peace? Do you have peace in your heart? I mean, can you say, it's well in my soul. I, I have peace in my life. I'm good. Not that all your circumstances are right. Not that everything's perfect around you. But in yourself, do you have peace? Because I believe that, I, I really and truly believe that it is impossible to be trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ fully resting in what he's done for us, and I have peace. When I get out of peace, it's because I'm not trusting in Christ. When I get out of peace, it's because I'm not putting all of my my trust, everything that I have, everything that I am, everything that's going to happen in the hands of a loving God. I'm asking you today, do you have peace? Do you have peace? Are you trusting in him right now? Have you ever trusted in him before? Where are you at? Where are you with that? Are are, are you truly leaning on him? Are you leaning in your own ability? Are you still trying to save yourself? Are you worshiping your worries and the cares of this world more than you're worshiping God? Because we love to do that, don't we? You know what? The worries of this world can't save you. Why worship them? Why trust in the, the cares of this world? They can't save us. We need to put our trust in Jesus. We need to put our trust in him and know that, listen, God, let me ask you this, whose, whose hands would it be better to be in, yours or God's? We say that, but, do, but, but, but are we there? Have we put it there? Because, listen, you have a God, back to Luke 15, you have a God who said, one of my sheep is gone. And what did the shepherd do? He went. He went. He went. The shepherd went. He went after the sheep. Who's the good shepherd? Jesus. The good shepherd went after his sheep. Jesus, the son of God, came after his sheep. He can't stand for anything to be lost. It's his valued treasure and he wants it back. He came. The good shepherd came. What did the lady do? She lit a, can- she lit a lamp, right? 
You know, God sent his Holy Spirit that he could light, put a light in your heart, that he could illuminate the darkness so that you could see the truth of God clearly, so that you could know Christ, that you would, that, 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 that literally the scales would fall off. The blindness that we have from this world would fall off so that we could see Jesus clearly. And he sent the Holy Spirit to illuminate this life. He came and, and he, he, he reveals the truth to us. He leads us into all truth that we could know God. That we could have forgiveness of sin through the shepherd who came to us. On in Luke 15, the prodigal son story, which, which should be the compassionate father. He's the only one in his right mind in the whole story, right? The father welcomes home a wayward son, and he puts up with a stubborn one that is mourning his, his younger brother coming home. The father reconciled with his wayward son. See, I've never seen this before until this week, but the awesome thing about Luke 15 is that when the Pharisees were grumbling about the sinners, Jesus spelled out the Trinity and salvation for them, bam, in three stories. He said, listen, the shepherd has come. He's come after his sheep. The Holy Spirit will illuminate and open your eyes to see the truth, and the Father will reconcile you back to himself so that you can know him. You can walk in forgiveness of sins, and you can have your life radically changed and not even your just your life on this earth but your eternity radically changed because you can now have peace with God and what I want you to hear today is that you can walk out of this building having peace with God being reconciled to God walking out of here knowing that you know what no matter what tomorrow brings I have peace with God I'm amazed at how many of us sit in church week after week, day, you know, Sunday after Sunday. We got no peace. And I'm wondering if, if maybe, if maybe it's because we're not trusting in him. This, this makes sense to our mind that, that there's no circumstance that's too big that God can't intervene. That there's no circumstance too big that God can't bring peace. But sometimes... For us to believe it in here is another story. And you know how you get to that place? The way you get to that place is you continually lay it down. I want to tell you what, I, I, this week of my life may have been the most stressful week I've ever had. I'm just saying, like getting all this stuff together, getting, I didn't know, like, I, I felt like I was going to be sick. I just didn't know how this morning. I didn't know. And you know what I kept doing? I kept going, God, this is yours. God, this is yours. You know, we've been in some, some bad situations in our life. We've been through a lot of illnesses. We've been through a lot of, a lot of disappointments. And you know how you get through them? You continually put it at God's feet. You continually recognize God for who he is. You continually go back and say, God, if you value my life so much that you gave your son, then I know, God, you care for me. And I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to trust in the one who paid it all who gave everything so that I could have life. You need to understand, when you come to Christ, you are a child of God. You have been reconciled to the Father. He sees great value in you. He sent His Son to claim you back. He sent His Spirit to open your eyes. And now the Father wants you to come home. That's the heart of a Father. 
That's the heart of our Father, our Heavenly Father, who desires for you to come home today. Let's pray.